it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Monday, February 21st, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Coming to you live from New York City and the worldwide headquarters of Fox News Channel here in the Big Apple. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's every single weekday. I'm Guy Benson. The reason that I'm here, of course, hosting the show for all of you as we do every weekday, I'm in New York specifically because I've got some TV duties this week. I was on America's Newsroom earlier. I'll be filling in for Kennedy on FBN in the 7 p.m. hour tonight. Also tomorrow night, same time. I'll also be on Outnumbered tomorrow on Fox News Channel at noon Eastern. So we've got a pretty full dance card here around these parts, but the most important dance is always with you. On The Guy Benson Show, our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every single day on demand when the show ends right around 6 p.m. Eastern time. Here's the guest lineup on today's show. We'll get to our first guest momentarily who will bring us the very latest Coming out of Russia and Ukraine, some major news breaking on those fronts with some statements within the last hour from Vladimir Putin in Moscow. And it portends very dark things indeed. We'll get to that momentarily. Later on, we will have Peter Ducey live from the White House getting his reaction from over there, what he's hearing, what the president is now doing in light of this new information and the new pronouncements From Vladimir Putin. We will also hit the COVID issue, a very significant New York Times story about the CDC reportedly keeping most of the data that they have about COVID out of the public eye. How is that justifiable? What does that mean? We will ask Dr. Mark Siegel. That's coming up in our middle hour. Also, in our final hour, some sound bites of the governor of Florida that I really want you to hear. Fascinating stuff about a huge achievement in Florida that I think has some political ramifications, not just this year, but really that could echo toward 2024 potentially. And finally, last but not least on the show, there was a meltdown in the world of Olympic figure skating. A doping scandal, the Russian team, tantrums, screaming, sobbing tears on worldwide television. What the hell happened? I wasn't watching because I wasn't watching these Olympics in Beijing, but one of our teammates watched very carefully, and she will update us with some of the blow-by-blow. It was apparently quite dramatic. Fox News alert as we get going here. Let's bring you stats on COVID. 78.3 million. That's the number of confirmed cases all in in the United States. The real number, of course, over the course of the last two years, much higher than that. The death toll... Now 933,899 Americans who have died with or of COVID since roughly March of 2020. 
So the death toll continues to rise, but deaths still continuing to fall as a trajectory down 15 percent over the last two weeks. Dow futures are down significantly. The markets, of course, are watching what's happening on the geopolitical front, and I would imagine tomorrow might be a pretty ugly day. But it is a holiday today, President's Day. So we'll have to hold off to see what the impact is globally with the markets, specifically, of course, here in the United States, until tomorrow. Joining us now is Eli Lake, who's a national security journalism fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas at Austin. He's an expert on foreign policy. He knows a lot about these issues. And Eli, it's good of you to join us on this very significant news day. Thanks for being here. No, thanks so much for having me, Guy. Okay, explain to us on a very elementary level, because, you know, I follow the news, I read, but I am not as sophisticated as you are on this. Explain to us what President Putin just declared in his speech to the world, basically, a few minutes ago, and what do those declarations mean? Well, what he what he has said is, is that Russia will now recognize the contested provinces in Donetsk, which have, have been supported by Russia, irregular forces since the 2014 invasion. And effectively, he is recognizing them as independent um, countries that are, while, they, while the rest of the world still recognizes these as provinces of Ukraine, he did something, the Russians did something very similar about a decade ago when it came to Georgia, after they invaded Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So what you're seeing here is um, a kind of another bite at Ukrainian sovereignty. This follows, of course, the annexation of Crimea, which happened in 2014 after the last Russian invasion. So what we've seen here is some kind of political recognition of these independent kind of what he's saying are now independent countries. Um, this is, you know, this is entirely a crisis that is created by Russia. Russia has supported the uh, kind of the, the people who would like these sort of the independence. Um, there, there's, a, there's not a lot of evidence, by the way, that they're speaking for even Russian-speaking Ukrainians at this point. So that is what has happened. It looks like a prelude to something else. We, the, the word from the White House is that the intention is to invade Ukraine with a full military force and that the target is the capital, Kiev, which would effectively negate the independence of Ukraine, an independent country. I mean, that's so much to digest, and it's very alarming. Sure. Just to be clear, these I know they're being called in a lot of the chirons and some of the headlines and tweets separatist regions, but these are elements of Ukraine's sovereign territory, just to be clear, correct? This is a declaration— Not only are they, el- Not only are they elements of Ukrainian, of Ukraine's sovereign territory, the only reason that these are contested re- regions at this point is because— Russia has pursued a cynical strategy to arm and support uh, kind of gangster militias. They've manufactured this, right? They've manufactured the situation that they now cite as some sort of excuse or justification. And that's the thing, Eli, as I watch all this play out, I understand that there are criticisms to be made of President Biden and the Biden administration, and I think his weakness and the fiasco in— Afghanistan, for example, certainly caught the attention of despots around the world. 
I think that you can talk about some of the things that Biden has said, the minor incursion, flub at his press conference, and we were critical of all of that. But I think to focus a lot of the attention on Biden or really anyone else at this point is to miss the point, at least right now, this is 100 percent the fault. This is 100 percent on the shoulders of this is 100 percent laid at the feet of Vladimir Putin. Right. He is doing this. No one else is responsible for this. Is that fair in your mind to say that? Absolutely. And I'll go one further. There are voices now on the right that sound a lot like traditional voices that we associate with the left, which is that they are uh, rationalizing Putin's predations and aggression as a response to the expansion of NATO, that there is warmongering in the U.S. media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is just running interference for uh, a, a despot who is intent on violating the basic rules of sovereignty and international security that have been, in, you know, the rules of the international system now for more than 70 years. Uh, it's totally Putin's fault. No one who calls themselves a conservative or considers themselves somebody on the right should have any kind of excuse making for Vladimir Putin. He is uh, destroying the sovereignty and independence of a country that clearly does not want to be occupied by Russia, full stop. And right, It's an American just, ally in a democracy, which absolutely. You know, Russia and is neither true. of those things. And look, you can have – I am more than happy to have a debate about whether or not the U.S. has any major stake in this fight. Should we get involved? And if so, to what extent? Most people, I think, would oppose boots on the ground in Ukraine. They are not a member of NATO, although that, you know, that potential situation is part of the reason, I think, why – Putin has done a lot of this to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. He's he's obsessed about that. But we can have disagreements about the extent of U.S. support for Ukraine and what that should look like. I think extrapolating that debate or then shifting that debate away into blaming in any way the Ukrainians or excusing in any way the Russians and Putin specifically is really losing sight of the clear – moral reality here. And the thing is with with Putin, he has created a crisis. And it almost strikes me, Eli, that he's barely going through the motions of justifying what would be potentially this full-fledged invasion of a free country. I mean, there's a few little false flag things that they're allegedly doing. And he went on this rant today about how Ukraine isn't really a country and never has been. It's like this, you know, puppet satellite state or something he called it, which is outrageous, a total lie. But I mean, that comment from him suggests that this is a lot bigger than some regions in eastern Ukraine, which is, I think, rather frightening. And the fact that they don't even feel compelled or the necessity to make a a case globally why they have to, quote unquote, go to war, I think underscores the word that you used, predation. That is what this is. Absolutely. And I would say, I don't even think he, I think that he talks about NATO purely as a kind of pretext. I don't think that the issue has been NATO expansion. I think that that is a red herring. Um, You know, this is, this is uh, a former KGB officer 
who uh, mourns the dissolution of the evil empire, the Soviet Union, and would like to restore a kind of Russian sphere of influence over the countries that used to be under the sway of a totalitarian slave state. They are no longer a communist empire. They're run by gangster oligarchs. But it's the same idea that the million, the, the, the 25 million people, Ukrainians, uh, their voice doesn't count. What they want doesn't matter. What Georgians want doesn't matter. It's that, that they, they, they should be under the boot of Russia because Russia is strong and they are weak. And the only thing that has prevented this kind of thing from now is the, is the fact that there was always assumed that there would be massive consequences from another very powerful country, the United States of America, and its powerful allies in Europe. And if there is a criticism now of Joe Biden, it is that for all of you know, the unity of NATO allies, the threat of massive financial sanctions, and that's probably a good thing, he has failed to deter Vladimir Putin in this regard, because there is no mm-hmm. negotiation or sweet reason that will persuade Vladimir Putin that you know, he, he shouldn't fear NATO because it's a defensive alliance. That's, that was never going to work. The only thing that works with somebody like Vladimir Putin is that he has to fear massive consequences if he does that. He has to sort of reason that it's just not worth the risk. And clearly he has not he has reached that conclusion. Joe Biden and has determined that, that it's worth the, the gamble. And then sadly, we will be living with those consequences. So what happens next here, Eli? Because Putin has just announced Russia now considers this region of Ukraine to be not Ukraine. It's an independent you know, republic or two. Is the next step for them to create some new fake reason that they have to send, you know, they need, quote unquote, to send Russian troops and armaments into that independent region to protect them? And then they encroach further into Ukraine. I mean, what is the domino here that might fall next? The Russians have been sending armaments into that region since 2014. This is that would not be new. What I think if we were to believe the intelligence that was uh, coming out of the White House and that we were hearing uh, from U.S. officials over the weekend. uh, Well, at this point, I think that I'm sure that there is some intelligence that says that. But I I mean, we we haven't seen the invasion yet. But if 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 that's true, then they've already made the decision. He's already made the decision to invade. That's what Joe Biden said on Friday. Um, And then so it's at this point we're sort of just waiting for that to happen. It certainly looks like that. And I understand that there has been a lot of, you know, predictions that, you know, the invasion could happen this week, it could happen then, it hasn't happened yet. And if you want to sort of play a game where you're saying, well, you know, why are we retailing this intelligence if it's not? But listen, it's entirely reasonable to think that that's what's going to happen. And I base that on the fact that Vladimir Putin has amassed an incredible invasion force capable of destroying Ukraine on the border of Ukraine. Well, and so now he's and now he's declared like part of Ukraine independent and sort of uh, somewhat under the auspices of, of, you know, Russia's realm or sphere of power. And he said in that same statement today that Ukraine isn't a real country, right? So, I mean, these breadcrumbs would seem to lead in the same direction, which is this this war, this invasion seems pretty likely, which is very frightening. Last word to you, Eli. We have about 30 seconds left. Well, I think it's very, very significant at this point. We have to understand that what Vladimir Putin is doing uh, is a, a huge challenge to the entire world and what it means to be an independent country. 
They, Ukraine has been an ally. The United States has armed and trained the Ukrainian military. If it falls, it is another massive blow to U.S. prestige. And it is also a signal to all of our other adversaries, from China to Iran, that it may be open season. So I hope he is deterred, mm. but I am really concerned at this point. That is a grim assessment from national security journalist and foreign policy expert Eli Lake joining us as we come on the air here. New week and some very dramatic geopolitical developments to bring to you. Eli, thank you for helping us in that task. No, thank you. The Guy Benson Show returns right after this break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson, and based on what we just heard there in the last segment from Eli Lake, it would seem that as disturbing as these pronouncements from Vladimir Putin are today, it's only going to get worse from here. President Biden spoke earlier this afternoon with President Zelensky of Ukraine, who is probably now grappling with the likely reality and eventuality that a Russian invasion is coming and could come to topple his whole country, sack the capital city, and depose him, an elected leader, from office. There are some European leaders, a growing chorus, calling for the sanctions, those crippling sanctions we've heard about now for weeks, for those to be imposed now. And why wait at this point? If the idea is that Putin's not going to be deterred, then start the pain Start the consequences now. Maybe he'll be startled by how severe they are, and he'll, re- he'll recalculate. If he doesn't recalculate, then at least start punishing him and limiting his cronies' access to the global banking market, for example. I think there's a strong case that some of those sanctions should have been put into place days or weeks ago. What's stopping that from happening now, I wonder? And by the way, one more point on whether we should believe the intelligence coming out of the U.S. or not. I know that we're a hell of a lot more trustworthy than the Russians are. We don't believe anything that the Russians tell us. We have no reason to. And I get it's an artifact, I think, largely from Iraq and Vietnam. Americans are rightly skeptical of our intelligence and what we're being told. That's fair. That does not mean we should buy hook, line, or sinker, anything coming out of Moscow. And if the intelligence proves right, it proves right. It's The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Fox News alert. During the break, just some breaking news. I was saying in the previous segment that it's time, long past time, 
in some ways for some of these consequences to start to go into action and into motion against Russia, given what Vladimir Putin said and announced today, which is likely a precursor for an invasion. And during the commercial break, just those few minutes while we were gone, the White House has put out a statement that that's exactly what is now starting to happen. Meanwhile, President Biden, having spoken with President Zelensky of Ukraine, is now on the phone with the French leader, President Macron, and the Chancellor of Germany, Schultz, and that is playing out right now. And one can hope that as the measures, whether it's sanctions or other forms of consequence for Putin and Russia and the Kremlin's inner circle, as they are announced by the United States, those are echoed by the rest of the free world. This needs to be a unified front because Vladimir Putin made the choice to push things closer to war today with his extremely provocative speech and his new announcements. And there's no defending them. And we'll keep you posted on any additional developments. In the meantime, we have that crisis in Ukraine, which we're talking a lot about for good reason. There's the crisis, for example, on inflation that a lot of American consumers have been experiencing. It's painful. It's acute. And in some ways, it's gotten worse. There's another crisis that we have promised on this show that we would not lose sight of, that we would not take our eye off of this ball because so many others in the media have. They almost never talk about it, which is the border crisis, Biden's border crisis. The last time, and I've mentioned this before, the last time the news media writ large covered the border crisis in a significant way was when they had the excuse, sort of the news hook that appealed to them of attacking our border patrol for a made up lie, the whipping slander, if you remember that, led by the president of the United States himself. That was not true that we had border patrol agents whipping Haitian nationals and illegal immigrants down in Texas. Didn't happen. But Biden said it happened and promised an investigation. And now I guess the investigation hasn't gone the way he wanted it to. And the Washington Examiner reported a few days ago that now the administration is reportedly considering not releasing the results of that investigation at all, because I think it would underscore the reality that the president and his whole team got way out over their skis and smeared a bunch of law enforcement officials in the United States. And the media got all spun up about it, if you'll recall. We were promised a swift probe and justice. Biden said something like, they're going to pay. Okay, whatever happened to that? We have Bill Malugin, our colleague at Fox, on this show a lot, reporting from the border. And I just want to underscore some of the stats here. And they are eye-popping stats before I get to a more personal story about how this issue affected my family in the last few days. You heard that right. I'll explain in just a moment. But based on U.S. official numbers, we are now well past 2 million encounters at the border under President Biden. More than 2 million. He's barely been in office for a year, right? A year and change at this point. This figure represents a historic high 
with the total outnumbering the combined number of crossings reported over the past two years by more than half a million. That's from foxnews.com. Now, what's amazing is you will see some of the criticisms of this on social media, and the spin from the left is, well, all these encounters means that the system's actually working. Border Patrol is doing their job. They're capturing these people. They're apprehending them. Now, of course, a lot of leftists are just cheering on the illegal immigration. They support it. But those who are taking a different tact are trying to say, oh, this isn't open borders. This is closed borders. And all these encounters prove it. And that's maybe on a facile level appealing. And some people who don't know anything or are ignorant might say, oh, gosh, maybe that's true. You just scratch a tiny bit below the surface and you realize that it's total nonsense. Because during that same time, we're up to roughly, and this is estimated, roughly half a million gotaways, people who are detected by our technology or seen by our personnel, but we lack the resources to go get them, so they just melt into the country. Half a million at least of those estimated. That doesn't count people that are unknown gotaways, that weren't detected. That is a huge number. If you add up known and unknown gotaways and you sort of ballpark it over the last year plus, you're getting close to the entire population of Washington, D.C., which the left wants to make a state, I will remind you. So the whole gotaways phenomenon, they just don't want you to think about that at all when they try to pretend like, oh, this is proof that the system's working. The more encounters you have, by the way, and the more you're using your people to process them, the fewer people you actually have on the front lines trying to stop truly dangerous people who might be trying to sneak in. That's another element of all of this. And then there's the phenomenon that we talked about a little bit in the last couple of weeks, which is the shocking decrease, the collapse in deportations. The Biden administration has specifically laid out in memos that they are going to stop deporting a lot of people, as a matter of course, illegal immigrants who violate our sovereignty by coming here against the law and then commit and are convicted of additional crimes. The Biden administration is saying there are categories of those crimes that will not subject those convicted offenders to automatic deportation. And I had to read this sentence twice. This is based on Border Patrol data. Adam Shaw, who's our colleague at Fox News, he's a politics reporter. He amplified Bill Malugin's reporting on this. Listen to this. More migrants were released into the United States in January, meaning last month. More migrants were released into the United States last month then were deported by ICE in the entirety of fiscal year 2021. DHS reported, to put numbers to that shocking sentence, DHS reported about 63,000 migrants were released into the United States in January of 2022, 62,000, 63,000. ICE reports in all of fiscal year 2021, the number of deportations by ICE was just under 56,000. 
We knew that there were a lot of illegal immigrants simply being released into the United States, sort of processed and released. We're even flying them places. We're sending them on airplanes to cities of their choosing to go reunite with family or friends or what have you with the expectation that they're going to show up for court one day. And, of course, many of them do not. Based on the government's own numbers, that happened 63,000 times last month. Last year, they deported fewer illegal immigrants than that. All in. If that doesn't encapsulate the absolutely backwards approach of this administration to illegal immigration, they can say, we're not open borders, don't come here, that's not what we believe. Actions speak louder than words. Their words are bad enough. Their actions are even worse. Now, if you're a regular listener to The Guy Benson Show, you know that we talk about this issue somewhat regularly because of that pledge that I made to all of you. We're not going to lose sight of it. We're not going to just ignore it like so many others in the press do. And I say all of this as someone who generally is not a hardliner on the issue of immigration. Right? I'm open to an idea of a DREAM Act, for example. But not until we get the problem under control, and the problem is the opposite of under control. Like, I want to be a welcoming, law-abiding society, law-respecting society. We should be compassionate. There are people who I think should be allowed to stay here and have some process to stay here. That might be different than citizenship. But to me, all of that is a wildly premature conversation at this point, given the debacle that is being inflicted on the country by the Biden administration and the choices that they're making. And all of that is a backdrop to what happened in the last few days. And I don't want to get overly dramatic about this. I don't want to get overly emotional about this. But my in-laws, Adam's parents, were visiting California. They were on vacation. And I believe at this point it was on Friday. They were driving and they were rear-ended in a violent accident. This crash was so severe that their airbags deployed. Someone smashed into the back of their car. Who was this someone? A drunk driver. Someone who was, you know, you've seen all the PSAs on TV. Buzz driving is drunk driving. Yes, smashed driving is also drunk driving. This person was apparently, there were witnesses who said, just swerving everywhere. This was an extremely intoxicated person behind the wheel of a car that crashed into the car that my in-laws are driving. He is apparently an illegal immigrant. No English, no papers, no insurance. The good news, thank God, is that my in-laws are going to be okay. They said that they had soreness in their back and their necks. The airbags probably helped. They're going to be okay. The other guy's car apparently was total, and I'm getting all of this through a few text messages and then through Adam as well. And, of course, it doesn't matter who's driving the car. If you've got a drunk driver who hits someone that you love, that is just outrageous. 
It's blood boiling. I tweeted about this yesterday that this happened, and I included two material facts in the tweet. Number one, that this was a drunk driver. Number two, that the drunk driver was also an an illegal immigrant. Someone who is not in this country legally. Someone who had no legal right to be in this country. And I would say unsurprisingly, I got pushback from generally left-leaning people on social media attacking me for having the temerity to mention that the person who crashed into my in-law's car hurting them was in this country illegally. Like, oh, that's an irrelevant piece of information. Like, I'm, what, the racist or the xenophobe for mentioning this fact? How dare you attack me for mentioning that fact? It is a relevant fact. I have gone out of my way on this show not to denigrate illegal immigrants, not to say that they're a bunch of criminals. The vast majority of them just want a better life. That doesn't mean they have the right to be here. That doesn't mean that we open our borders to them. We still need to control things. But I don't sit here railing against immigrants, certainly not legal ones, or even illegal ones in a personal way. Is there my concern that a disproportionately high number of the people who go out of their way to elude Border Patrol might be up to no good or could be dangerous people, part of gangs or cartels or what have you? Yes, And there is a public safety component to this, but I have not been a demagogue on this issue. And yet I'm treated like the bad guy, the bigot, for noting that my in-laws were hit by a drunk driver who should not have been in this country at all. He didn't have a right to be here. And if you feel like that should not compound my anger about this or affect my anger about this, screw you. It is a fact, and it's not acceptable. I'm not tarring a bunch of people with a broad brush. I'm saying what this individual did. This person shouldn't have been here at all because we have laws in this country that we should at least pretend that we're interested in enforcing. God forbid if things had gone differently or worse, I don't think I could contain my fury about this. This is relatively controlled anger right now for me because they're okay. But this is a failure. This is a combination of law-breaking and failure. And the law-breaking is on that guy, The failure is on that guy, but the failure is also on public officials who incentivize and in some ways encourage illegal immigration. Last point, in some of these memos that they've put out from DHS, from this administration, I talked earlier, just a few minutes ago, about classes of crimes that do not automatically make you eligible for immediate deportation, sort of like an auto deport if you're convicted of additional crimes in this country as an illegal immigrant already they have whole categories saying oh not as a matter of course anymore let's give some leeway you know what one of those crimes is drunk driving now this guy hits someone and hurts some people maybe that 
makes it worse so he'll get deported. The fact that I'm not sure is absurd. So we've been talking about this issue for a reason. I think it matters when it comes to policy. And now here is this frightening, enraging, personal situation and experience that has impacted my family. So if they were hoping over at the White House that I would maybe lose interest in this story and this issue broadly, well, good luck with that now. I got to go. I'm late. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. Boris Johnson, the prime minister over in the UK, who's been in some hot water for, I guess, his staff having parties during COVID restrictions. He has announced a lifting of those COVID restrictions across England. The New York Times reporting that the British prime minister is shifting toward a strategy of living with COVID-19, while critics argue that the move is coming too soon, even as case numbers fall. Critics are going to argue that it's too soon forever. You need leaders to just do it. One of the arguments that I've seen is, how can he do this when Her Majesty the Queen has just confirmed that she has COVID? By the way, we wish the Queen the very best. She's 95, which is sort of obviously danger zone. Praying for a speedy and full recovery for her. But she contracted COVID during the restrictions. So what's the argument here? We can't get rid of the restrictions that didn't work in preventing this for her, so we have to keep them? That's pretty incoherent. Although it's not surprising, the incoherence. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show. Coming up, Peter Ducey next. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on The Guy Benson Show, live from New York. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every single weekday. If you miss any of the broadcast as it airs, you've got a podcast free of charge on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us on social at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Programming notes, I will be on Kennedy tonight. In fact, I'm filling in for her. Fox Business, 7 p.m. hour Eastern time tonight and tomorrow. Excited for that. I'm also scheduled to appear on Outnumbered as the hashtag one lucky guy tomorrow on Fox News Channel, noon Eastern. As we get going here in our middle hour, let's get to our next guest, Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent who joins us from Washington. Peter, it's great to have you here. Good to be back, guy. Thank you. I have to say before we get to more serious subjects, I'm feeling a little bit of like retrospective FOMO because you and your (laughs) wife Hillary hung out with Adam over at a neighborhood bar the other day and he came back and he's like oh my gosh we had so much fun we had some drinks some stories apparently were flying back and forth and I was napping when all of this got hatched I had been traveling I was so exhausted sorry to miss you guys but it sounded like you had a blast without me honestly oh yeah oh yeah you missed out All right. Fair enough. Next time, I I will make sure that I will be in person, part of the festivities next time. In the meantime, Peter, 
Obviously, a very distressing day in Eastern Europe and a flurry of activity, starting with an announcement from President Putin, or really he's more of a dictator in my view, in Moscow. And I would imagine at the White House that is being greeted as a very serious development, but not necessarily a surprise. Right. And it's kind of a weird day at the White House because since it's a federal holiday, uh, it's not like a normally functioning office. They obviously have the capabilities to uh, get classified information and to have small meetings. But uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, most of the staff seem to be off campus. Um, But they waited until Putin finished talking today, and then they announced – some very limited, like financial, uh, very narrowly targeted financial sanctions uh, on this part of Ukraine that Putin is claiming isn't part of Ukraine anymore. Um, but that's it so far today. And we're waiting to see if the president's going to come out. They haven't given us a lid yet, so it's possible that he could be seen on camera. But otherwise, uh, we might just be on the lookout in our inboxes for like an executive order, and that's it. Wait, so you're saying that with this huge development geopolitically at the White House today, because it's a federal holiday, a lot of the team is just on vacation? Well, a lot of the – in terms of the whole functioning White House, yes. Uh, The key national security people we've seen coming and going all day, like the defense secretary and the CIA director and the secretary of state, they are all here. But just – Otherwise, uh, it is a federal holiday at a federal office. <laughs> We've heard, Peter, from the White House that the president has spoken with Zelensky of Ukraine, Macron of France, Schultz of Germany. Has there been any readout about what the content of those conversations were at this point? No, there's nothing yet. And there is a NBC story that crossed a little while ago, and we're hoping to get – clarification on. But NBC says that when the Biden team talks to Ukraine's president, they're trying to get him uh, to decide on whether or not he should leave Ukraine once Putin comes in. And so things are – there's a lot of very serious calls happening here. This isn't just like, oh, look at what Putin did. What do you think we should do? Should we have a meeting? Should we have a Zoom? Uh, They're they're trying to figure out what exactly to to do next. Well, that could be – I would imagine, based on some of the other reporting that we've seen, that there's an indication from Western intelligence. And again, everything comes with a grain of salt, but I trust Western intelligence more than Russian intelligence. Uh, There are reports that the Russians have drawn up an assassination list, basically a kill list of some high profile Ukrainians. You would imagine that if they decide to invade, uh, to invade rather, that could really happen quite imminently, apparently, based on what we've seen, there would be a clear, almost immediate danger to the safety of President Zelensky should they go to Kiev, as is widely reported the intention is at this point. I guess I'm not surprised that there would at least be conversations underway about what to do, you know, from Zelensky's standpoint. Does he stay? Does he risk his life? I mean, that might sound premature, but maybe it's not so premature at this stage. Yeah, maybe it's not. But, uh, you know, this president seemed that he was acting for weeks now like uh, President Biden. Um, If he just warned about sanctions and financial punishment, Putin would back down. And 
it didn't happen. Like Putin is, if anything, getting more aggressive with the things that he's saying and the mm-hmm. things that he's doing. And so if if there was going to be a time where you might see a course correction from an administration, maybe this is it because the approach hasn't really been yielding a positive result. Um, but But we don't know yet. Yeah. I saw this coming across from our colleague Jennifer Griffin, that the Pentagon reportedly is expecting Putin to move into Ukraine tonight, at least to those just recognized so-called independent areas, which are part of Ukraine, but Russia has now declared those uh, regions not part of Ukraine anymore. So the Russians may more formally move in militarily to those sort of far eastern provinces. That's what Jennifer Griffin reports the Pentagon imagines could happen as soon as tonight. And Peter, to your point about the sanctions and the threats, we've had people on this show, experts, you know, members of Congress, et cetera, who've been saying now for a period of days, I guess weeks at this point, that the time was then to start imposing some of these sanctions and then turning the heat up if Putin continued not to react to those consequences. You mentioned as we were coming on here that Jennifer uh, Saki put out this statement about a few low-level things that they're doing. Is there any serious conversation that you're privy to or that they're telling the, the, you know, the press corps about? about you know, they, they keep promising huge, sweeping, crippling, painful, unified sanctions. Maybe that's what these phone calls are coordinating right now. But is there any indication that those are coming immediately or are they still waiting on Putin to keep doing more before they go there? It sounds like those sanctions are are going to be announced as soon as he actually crosses the border militarily, whether it's into these eastern Ukrainian provinces that claim that they're not you know, part of Russia anymore or uh, into like the capital region. Um, and so that it could be as soon as tonight. Um, but we just don't know yet. It, it is it is something that's moving really slowly, though. We saw, I mean, yeah, it's slowly, but not so slowly. There's a lot of contradictions here and a lot of confusion, but I think the concern is extremely well-founded based on every single thing, basically, that the Russians have done. Meanwhile, in the U.S. response to all of this, I know that the vice president has been deployed abroad to be one of the people speaking on behalf of the administration, as is Secretary Blinken. The president has not gone over there himself And there were some reports out there in the news media, Peter, that maybe you saw that there was grumbling within the president's team within the White House that Harris and Blinken aren't necessarily coordinating closely. And some people saying Harris really shouldn't be there at all and that she's just trying to sort of burnish her foreign policy credentials. I have no idea how much any of that is true. I do know that the president himself is not there and there are White House sources telling this to journalists. I mean, I'm sort of amazed that in the middle of this, which is a bona fide international crisis, some of the backbiting and palace intrigue apparently is continuing unabated. Well, and what would be the easiest way to make all those stories stop? Just send the president over there to meet with these people in person. But they decided that they wanted him here. And, you know, you do have a lot easier of a time if you're the president 
operating in an international crisis from like the Situation Room, mm-hmm. and you got all your people here. Right, it's designed for that, right? Um, and, and there was something going on there today that uh, made him cancel a trip to Delaware, which pretty much never happens. Uh, so that is the place to be if you're stateside. But but they could have gone, and instead of having all these calls, uh, they could have gotten everybody in a room in Munich because basically all is. All his counterparts were there, but they chose to send the vice president. And it might take a while for us to get to the bottom of that, but that is that is a big decision that they made during a time of crisis. Last question, Peter, and you mentioned this sort of briefly in your opening lay of the land as – just to recap for people who might be tuning in here, Vladimir Putin of Russia came out just hours ago announcing that some regions, some areas in eastern Ukraine do not count – in the view of Russia as Ukraine anymore. They're independent republics and Russia's going to support them. And now there's reporting from our colleague Jennifer Griffin that they might move troops explicitly into those territories, which is Ukrainian territory, as soon as tonight. In the speech, he also said, and I think this was pretty ominous, that Ukraine has never really been a legitimate country. It's really just this puppet state. Uh, that would indicate that this is about much more than grousing about the potential expansion of NATO or a few supposedly contested territories in one part of the country. It seems like his designs are uh, much grander than that, which is a scary thing. And Peter, you said that at least as of now, right, 418 Eastern, there's been no indication that we're going to hear from President Biden himself. I mean, he has been giving the country updates with some statements on camera in recent days this seems to be the most dramatic of days so far in terms of actual things happening. We don't know if we're going to hear from the president tonight at no, all. No, we don't. And no, we don't. And it kind of reminds me of the day that we were sitting here and uh, the Kabul airport was hit mm-hmm. and more than a dozen service members were uh, lost their lives. And we sat around all day waiting to hear from him like there was nothing. And then they finally announced a statement uh, later in the day. Um, this is the biggest international incident since that. And so, you know, maybe we hear from him, maybe we don't, but there's nothing on the schedule as of, uh, 418 Eastern here in the White House basement. Well, you'll be watching that all very carefully. And if anything changes, of course, I'm sure you'll be off to the news cameras on Fox News Channel and beyond. Peter Ducey, our colleague at Fox, White House correspondent joining us from the White House. Peter, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Guy. We will step aside. We'll come right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you along from New York City. Beyond Kennedy tonight, 7 Eastern, Fox Business Network, GuyBensonShow.com here. Podcasts always free at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. So we were just talking briefly in that last segment with Peter Ducey at the White House. And one of my questions was about the vice president being abroad in Germany, not the president. And our vice president has, how shall I put this, shortcomings, I think it's fair to say. And I don't really want to attack her too full-throatedly while she is representing the United States in a time of crisis where the clear villain here, the clear antagonist is Putin and the Russians, not the Biden administration, although I have 
course, criticisms of the Biden administration on this and many other subjects. But she was asked by a reporter, the vice president was, about the deterrent effect of sanctions. And in cut nine, just listen to the back and forth and see if you find maybe a hole in the logic here. Listen. But if you believe Putin has made up his mind, what leverage do you really have? Why not put those sanctions in place now? The purpose of the sanctions has always been and continues to be deterrence. But if Putin has made up his mind, do you feel that this threat that has been looming is really going to deter him? Absolutely. We strongly believe. And, and remember also that the sanctions are a product not only of our perspective as the United States, but a shared perspective among our allies. And the allied relationship is such that we have agreed that the deterrence effect of these sanctions is still a meaningful one, especially because, remember also, we still sincerely hope that there is a diplomatic path out of this moment. And within the context then of the fact that that window is still opening, although, open, although it is absolutely narrowing, but within the context of a diplomatic path still being open. I'm just a little bit confused because the question was, do you believe that the deterrent effect of the would-be sanctions is successful if you also believe, which President Biden announced on Friday, that Putin has made up his mind and he's going to invade. That would suggest that the deterrence did not work. Right? Biden told the country Friday evening that it is the belief of the United States and our intelligence services and the White House that Biden made the decision to move forward with this invasion of Ukraine and everything that Putin has done since then would seem to back that up. So that would mean the deterrence didn't happen or isn't going to happen based on what the White House told us. She was asked, well, do you still believe that it is deterrent and having that effect? And Harris says, absolutely. It's it's muddled, I think is a polite way to put it. That was Vice President Harris masked up as a triple vaxxed Fairly young adult, masked up, you know, going back and forth with reporters. In the meantime, I do want to mention this note. Neil Cavuto, our colleague here at Fox News, he has been off the air since January 11th on his shows on both networks, FBN and FNC. He's back today. He addressed his return earlier. Cut 20. I did get COVID again but a far, far more serious strand, what doctors call COVID pneumonia. It landed me in intensive care for quite a while, and it really was touch and go. Some of you who've wanted to put me out of my misery darn near got what you wished for. So sorry to disappoint you, but no, the vaccine didn't cause that. That grassy knoll theory has come up a lot. My very compromised immune system did. Because I've had cancer and right now I have multiple sclerosis, I'm among the vulnerable 3 percenters or so the population that cannot sustain the full benefits of a vaccine. In other words, it simply doesn't last. But let me be clear. Doctors say, had I not been vaccinated at all, I wouldn't be here. It provided some defense, but that is still better than no defense. Well, I'm very grateful to hear that. We're all grateful that Neil is back in the saddle. We've missed him. Three hours a day on Fox Business and then the 4 p.m. hour right now. I've been watching him on mute here in the studio. He was responding to some listener emails. Why didn't Fox say anything? Why wasn't this revealed? He said those were my wishes based on my privacy. And as he revealed right there, he was in intensive care for a while. And it was really scary, touch and go. But he pulled through. 
and the vaccine helped keep him alive. But as he said, I mean, he is the definition of immunocompromised. As a cancer survivor, someone who's battling MS, then you've got COVID plus pneumonia. That is that is really tough stuff. But Neil is a beloved person in this building, and we're all very happy to hear that he's back, to see that he's back, and let's hope that he stays back on the air for a very long time. Welcome back, Neil Cavuto. The Guy Benson Show continues with Dr. Siegel responding to a New York Times story. You don't want to miss this. Next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free on demand every single day. Catch me tonight sitting in for Kennedy in the 7 p.m. hour on Fox Business Network over on the tube. Here on the radio, we're very happy to welcome back to the show Fox News medical correspondent, Dr. Mark Siegel, author of the book COVID, The Politics of Fear and the Power of Science. And, Doctor, it is great to have you back on the show. Thanks for making time for us today. Great to be on with you, Guy. Tonight I'll be looking to see if you can match Kennedy's sense of humor. Well, I won't be able to do that. But if I can come (laughs) close, then I guess that'll be satisfactory. No one can truly fill those high heels because she's unique. (laughs) But I'll do my very best uh, to hold down the fort while she's gone. Doctor, let's start with this New York Times story that created some waves yesterday and today. It's a piece that's basically blowing the whistle on the fact that the CDC has not released really the vast majority of data that it's been collecting on COVID. And they have a bunch of reasons why, and it's a bureaucracy and things take time, and they're trying to go through all of their numbers before they release stuff so they feel confident in those numbers. But there's also this expression that officials inside the government fear that by putting out a bunch of the data, people might not be able to interpret it properly and it would do more harm than good. I think that revelation unto itself is fueling a lot of the, I would say, mistrust that's been really building now for the better part of two years, where folks are asking, okay, if they have a ton of data on COVID and vaccines and other related things, and they're hiding it from us, or they feel like we can't handle it, what does that mean? What are they seeing I think those are fair questions to ask. What do you make of it as a doctor who can really interpret this stuff from a point of expertise? And actually, Guy, I can do a lot more than you than you even may realize. I've interviewed the last four CDC directors, including the current one, multiple times. I've had off-the-record conversations with Bob Redfield and with Rochelle Walensky, and I, I have a sense of the leadership there. And I know the whole uh, mechanism within the CDC well, too. I know those PR people that are putting out statements like the one you mentioned in the New York Times. I also know Apoorva Mondavilli very, very well, and I've had her on my radio show. She's a really good reporter. And so she's not a flamethrower. She's trying to get to the bottom of the story. And I think some of what really is shocking is what you already said, which is, I don't think there's any place, and we just, I just finished blasting Scotland on this. There's no place for this idea of curating data before it gets out there. Okay, we're at a time when people are distorting and misusing information. The solution to that is never to withhold information. You have to grin and bear it and figure out ways to counter people that say things or interpret things the wrong way. Now, here's a really good example, and Apoorva got to this point, but I want to go a little deeper. What about our teens? 
you know, what about our teens and how many shots should they get? Right. A lot of us want to know the answer to that. And it's complicated because of something called long COVID that we actually haven't studied enough. So let's let's admit that we don't have enough information on that. What we do know, though, is that teens are very unlikely to be hospitalized with COVID. Well, hang on. Can I just ask you just to jump in? Because this is just a clarifying question. I don't know what the answer is. Is it true that we haven't studied it or have we studied it, but they won't give us the results? See what I'm saying? They don't have the they don't have the full data on long COVID okay. yet because what they're focusing on is hospitals and hospitals are not necessarily where you end up with co- long COVID. Okay. It may be brain fog. I think they have more data on the hospitals than they're admitting, but they're going to say, well, the states don't pony up all the data they have. We have a mechanism for collecting data that's antiquated. We're, we're since Redfield, we're trying to change it to real time, but they didn't give us enough money. They gave us a billion dollars. We wanted $25 billion. They need CDC officers in every state in the country working directly with the states and getting us that data in real time. I think the bigger problem than deliberate suppression is, is, is disorganization and fumbling and a lack of integration of information. Now, I, I actually disagree with something in the article, and you may agree with me on this guy, I'm hoping. I'm, I'm applauding Israel for what they've done. My hat is off to Israel data. They're like a laboratory for the Pfizer vaccine, and I don't have any hesitation about interpreting their data here in the United States. We should be doing more of that. Okay, we got a country that got their act together, and we don't. Right. So we don't say, we don't say that data doesn't matter. It matters. No, and I would say it's, just to use my own terminology here, it's a form of radical transparency from the Israelis where they're doing a national experiment on a massive scale and they are sharing the results of that experiment with the rest of the world in real time. I mean, to to have anything other than support for that or, I guess, praise for that, right, is very strange to me, considering that we're doing the opposite here and it doesn't seem like it's serving us very well here. Yeah, I, I agree completely with that. And I think Israel has to form the backbone of what we should be shooting for. The right, it's admirable. The, right. The wastewater analysis is another example of that. I mean, we're not doing that soon enough. That apparatus has been in place since uh, September of 2020, by the way. And that, what, what do I mean by the wastewater? We can tell variants as they're emerging by actually seeing, looking for, for copies of the viruses in wastewater. Right. I remember we did a story about that in Omicron in Florida wastewater in the Disney area many months ago. And that was there sort of like go. a canary in the coal mine type, hey, this is coming. And that actually gave us an indication of how much less severe, how you know relatively mild Omicron would be. And it's just odd that we'll get sort of this scattershot, occasional glimpses of information, and we'll try to piece it all together, but it doesn't really feel like there's someone truly driving the bus in a credible way when it comes to data in this country. And this New York Times story to me was eye-opening because it really did suggest that to use your terminology, we don't really have our eye on the ball. It's kind of this jumbled and disorganized situation. And on top of that, there are people in high positions saying, okay, let's also not release a bunch of this stuff because people might take data the wrong way. And again, I can understand that fear. I'm sympathetic to that mentality, but ultimately, when a lot of people are losing trust in you or have lost trust in you, for it to come out that you are hiding information from them for their own good, 
that is only going to, I would say, fortify those fears and those suspicions and will in many ways make things worse. That's that's my overall take on this. Yeah, I agree with that. I would make a couple of points that that may push back a little on this, which is, A, I think the whole situation is overly politicized, which I'm sure you agree with. Yep. And, and that's from the administration on down. I mean, that's the White House press secretary overruling the CDC director. And all of this stuff is pure, purely political from an administration that said they were going to be purely science. They've been purely politics. But the other piece is, I have a, a pretty good high regard for the CDC director, and I don't know how much of this is coming from her. I don't get the feeling that she's personally telling them to suppress information. So if I'm right about that, it speaks again to the disorganization of the situation. Who is doing that? Where is it coming from? Is it coming from the White House? It's actually abhorrent. It's against the way we believe America should be exchanging information. That's one of the things that makes us a democracy, which is we want transparency at all times. What is your theory on, for example, the shots for teenagers and kids? If they are not giving us all the information that they have on that, is it because maybe there's not as strong a case for vaccinating kids as they would like to have out there and they're trying to just speak with one voice, please get your children vaccinated, but the picture is actually more complicated medically and they feel like to have that complexity out in the discussion, that would um, sort of scramble their messaging? So that's actually the most important question of all, and you phrased it perfectly. So I'm actually going to give you the medical answer to that. Here's what they should be saying. They should be saying that data shows that the risk of a severe outcome in a teen or a young adult is very low, but that the vaccine decreases that risk, and it decreases the risk of long COVID dramatically, and that you don't want your kid ending up in the hospital. So even if the risk of hospitalization is low, it's worth taking that risk. But does that apply to a booster? Well, that's where the disagreement lies. And Paul Offit from Penn, who's one of the top vaccine experts in the country, if not the top, doesn't feel that the data backs the booster for teens. But, but yes to the vaccine. Now, why does that matter? Because a lot of schools and universities are mandating the booster, aren't they? So that's the kind of open discussion we need, informed. We're not just worried about hospitalization and death. 600 children have died over the course of the pandemic. We're not going to use fear-mongering to, to get you to comply, but let's talk about long COVID. Let's talk about two shots. What is the, what is the risk? What is the benefit? And then you make your own decision. I think it, it, the decision backs the vaccine. But, but I don't think it backs the mandate. Dr. Siegel, there is this other story that's out there, and I've been very hesitant even sharing anything about it on my social media accounts or on this show because I want to make sure that we know what we're talking about. But there is some indication that the CDC has quietly lowered the bar when it comes to standards on early childhood speech development. And the theory among some cynics or skeptics at least is – Because we're doing so much damage to kids with mask mandates and this sort of thing for no real good medical reason, they want to sort of change the standards, change the science to make it seem like that harm is less acute than it actually is. The flip side that I have seen and read is that the data that was driving this decision to change the standards was actually from previous to COVID years. So this is not a COVID-driven decision, even if the timing might look suspicious. I don't know what the truth is. 
I also just think that there is a lack of trust among the American people, especially sort of center, center right people when it comes to the public health establishment. And even if you tell us this data is solid data from pre-COVID, the timing at least smells funky enough that people are going to wonder about it. And I feel like this is a bed that has been made by public health officials by their lack of transparency and their very muddled messaging. And really, I'd say their credibility issues that they've developed in recent years. Is that fair? And I don't know if you can shine any light on the actual science behind this. It's more the trust issue that I think goes a lot deeper than any particular medical-related controversy. I think that's incredibly well stated by you, very well put together, and especially pointing out that the data is previous to the pandemic. But, of course, given the socialization issues, and I would argue masking is part of it, but remote schooling is even more a part of it. Of course, of course, the problem is going to get worse. So, in a way, they're trying to get ahead of what they know is going to be a worsening problem, which preceded the pandemic. And, yes... I've been defining from the beginning, and so have you, that public health is not a virus. Public health is a virus, and then whatever you do to react to it causes other public health issues that must be taken into account. And I I don't think it's a sweeping under the rug. I think it's an acknowledging of of a tremendous problem we have among our children that probably outweighs COVID. And, you know, and, and, and resources need to be need to need to be sent to that. And that's a whole other issue, which is we don't have enough focus on the mental health pandemic that we're causing here, especially in our children. Last question, doctor. I saw this and I had to chuckle. The governor of California, Gavin Newsom, put out this big announcement and this big plan saying we're going to be the first state in the nation shifting to an endemic covid approach. And I feel like that memo must have been missed by the many states that have effectively been on an endemic COVID footing now for more than a year. I guess California is sensing the changing politics, and so they want to make that splash. But I wouldn't say that California would be at the top of my list of states that have been treating COVID as endemic. Is that fair? Yeah, especially down there in L.A. County, where they've been absolutely the, the worst at getting any kind of consistent strategy going, mm-hmm. where, where there's all kinds of incompetence and, and hypocrisy with, as you know, governors not wearing masks, going to restaurants that are closed, closing restaurants that weren't spreading it. I mean, it, football you know, games, been, right, football games. And then, you know, and then I, I think I think the endemic model and as you pointed out, it's one that we've seen in Florida and to a lesser extent Texas for a long time now, is that the focus has to be on severity and hospitalizations and hospital capacity. Hey, that's my bread and butter, Guy. I want to know how many people are in the hospital. A mild case or an asymptomatic case, that's of epidemiological interest, but that's not where the focus should be. The excess focus on the case numbers, which has come from the government, is part of what's caused the mental health pandemic. And, of course, they've now very belatedly decided that they need to start distinguishing in the data between hospitalizations with COVID versus hospitalizations caused by COVID. That's a distinction many of us have been calling for as a crucial one for a very long time. It just seems like everything is slow and happening far too late. And there's a bunch of data apparently beneath the surface that they're sitting on that they don't want us to see. And it breeds, I think, resentment and some fear and a lot of cynicism that really doesn't help matters. We've got to leave it there for now, but we always appreciate 
the time and insights of Dr. Mark Siegel, Fox News medical correspondent. Doctor, thank you so much. Great pleasure, Guy. I really appreciate it, and I agree with the last statement. Thanks for having me on. You bet. And we will step aside and come right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's The Guy Benson Show. We are back. Thanks so much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free on demand every day. If you can't listen, 3 to 6 Eastern. Well, the mayor of San Francisco, who's been caught now multiple times violating various mask mandates, including her own, she endorsed the recall against those three left-wing woke school board members out in San Francisco who got thrown out by voters overwhelmingly last week. And by the sound of her statements on Meet the Press yesterday, I would guess that she is really getting a sense of how fast things are shifting under her feet. And she's trying to keep up. So she was feeling the spirit just in a different way on NBC yesterday. We talked about it actually on America's Newsroom earlier. I was back in the studio with Bill Hammer and Dana Perino. That was fantastic to see them in person. We talked about this soundbite. Listen to it yourself. This is the Democratic lefty mayor of San Francisco Cut 11. We failed our children. Parents were upset, and the decision to recall school board members was a result of that. This is not a Democratic-Republican issue. This is an issue about the education of our children. And I think that ultimately it's important that anyone who serves in any capacity, whether it's school board, Congress, or as mayor, it's important to respond to what your priority is as a mayor or as a school board member, and that is the role that you were put in the office to do. So in this particular case, the board neglected their primary responsibility to focus on other things, other things that are important but not as significant as what they were there to do, and that is to educate children. Yeah, they didn't educate children. They had kids locked out of classrooms. They were trying to rename the schools. That was just one example of what happened out there. And I want to give her like half a clap for this answer. Because she still has to answer for the fact that she imposed a bunch of mandates and then ignored them herself flagrantly and then made excuses. That's still part of her record. But if we're trying to move on from this COVID emergency setting and that sort of atmosphere, you have to give some people sort of maybe surprising allies a little bit of credit for being better late than never. Because there still seem to be quite a lot of people invested in never on some of this stuff, which is totally unacceptable. Someone who was right very early in this saga was Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. Some audio that you really need to hear straight ahead. When we come back, it's the happy hour coming up. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, our final hour of three, between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. Thank you for listening. I'm Guy Benson. Programming note, I'll be filling in for Kennedy tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern on Fox Business Network. I'll be there tomorrow as well. Looking forward to that. I will also be co-hosting Outnumbered on Fox News Channel tomorrow 
at noon Eastern. Of course, there's a lot of breaking news on the world front, so we'll see if anything changes. But for now, Kennedy tonight and tomorrow and outnumbered tomorrow afternoon, Fox Business and Fox News Channel, respectively. Our website here at the radio show, GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And the happy hour is sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink, which is refreshing and delicious. I keep hearing from you guys, trying it for the first time, and you're discovering what we already know, many of us. It is a fantastic product. Check it out if you haven't already. They're expanding even further across the country, thelongdrink.com, to find out where it's sold near you. The crisp citrus soda with a premium liquor kick. 21 plus only, of course. Always drink responsibly. Thelongdrink.com. As we enter our final hour, I want to play for you some audio. And it comes from a press conference that was actually given late last week from Governor Ron DeSantis down in Florida. And I saw some of the headlines about this. I saw one or two little clips, and I didn't pay it much heed, aside from just taking mental note that they had some exciting news in Florida on the tourism front. But then I saw over the weekend Governor DeSantis was still tweeting out videos and clips from this longer press conference, and that piqued my interest enough that I wanted to go back and actually watch this thing. The full video is more than half an hour long. We're not going to get to all of that, obviously. But in the first five or six minutes of what DeSantis said last week, I think it was almost like an infomercial not only for the state of Florida but for his approach to governance. Why am I intrigued by this? Number one, we're watching that race very closely in 2022, his reelection campaign, and all the implications that I think his success or failure would have nationwide. And, of course, based on the polling that we've talked about recently, he seems to very much be on a path towards success and perhaps resounding success. We'll see. But also, whenever you look at someone positioning themselves potentially for bigger things out into the future, I find it fascinating as a matter of political analysis. And I think Ron DeSantis very much would like to run for president in 2024. I think there's the Trump issue that's hanging over it. He's got to get reelected first in Florida. But if you're a Republican voter or even an independent voter, and I would say a handful of Democrats fall into this category as well, if you are trying to think about what your next president ought to look like, and what sort of things you would like to see delivered by that president, I think that DeSantis is putting a very strong foot forward for the people of Florida this year and maybe a wider audience a few years down the line. So here's DeSantis touting, I think understandably, it'd be political malpractice not to make a big deal out of this, the tourism numbers in Florida during the pandemic. Some of these numbers are absolutely astounding. He lays them out. Let's start with cut 12. Prior to COVID hitting January of 2020, the general revenue estimated for the state of Florida for 2020-2021 fiscal year was $34.4 billion. COVID hits, international travel stops, domestic travel really ground to a halt. As a tourism state, that really was a big deal. So in August of 2020, the people that estimate revenue in Florida, they dropped the estimate of revenue from $34.4 billion to $30.9 billion. And they were forecasting really difficult economic circumstance. Uh, and then what happened 
the actual collections as reported in August of 21 for that fiscal year was not the 30.9 billion that they revised downward due to COVID. It wasn't even the 34.4 billion pre-COVID estimate. It was $36.2 billion uh, in terms of the revenue that came in. And again, we don't have an income tax in Florida. We will never, as long as I'm governor, we have the lowest per capita tax burden and yet big increase in revenue. So they blew out even the pre-COVID estimates of state revenue in Florida. They revised down the estimates because of the pandemic, and then they surpassed even the better number before COVID hit by a lot. And what he said at the very end there I think is important. He said, we don't have income tax in Florida, state income tax. We never will as long as I'm governor. We have the lowest per capita tax burden and yet a big increase in revenue. This, I think, is an important point to make politically and based on policy. We're always told by the left, if you have a low tax burden or you cut people's taxes, if the government isn't out there with their hands in your pocket all the time, the government's going to get starved, revenues are going to collapse, and people who are indigent are going to be suffering far and wide. The children are going to suffer, right? They have this whole list of horribles. Here is one of the lowest tax burden states in the country with ballooning revenue. Because growth and opportunity in a business-friendly climate can work wonders. Then he starts talking about new businesses in Florida. He decides to contrast the picture in his state with the picture in California. I don't think that's a coincidence in Cut 13. Uh, We've also led the country in business formations. And when you think about it, we're the third largest state, but we are way more than California, which is the, the biggest state by far. And um, we saw 114,000 more business formations. 2021, we actually increased business formations by 61% compared to 2019, the first year I was governor. And so I think you see a lot of the momentum. And so why are we here today? Well, we're here today to be able to announce that Florida's visitation once again topped pre-pandemic levels in the fourth quarter of 2021. Florida. Florida had 30.9 million visitors from October through December, higher than 2019 pre-COVID outright, and up nearly 60% from the same period in 2020. This is the second consecutive quarter that we had more visitors in Florida than the same time period in 2019 pre-COVID. They are outpacing their visitation, tourism, from their pre-COVID numbers. Talk about a hell of a comeback. And that's now back-to-back quarters. This in Cut 14, I think, is probably the most powerful stuff that he says. He is making the argument directly for why people want to come And vacation in Florida. And frankly, listening to it, I was sort of thinking, I do want to go vacation in Florida. The numbers speak for themselves. And this message, I think, is resonating, not just because it falls on my ears that way. And I think, oh, yes, I like what he's saying. The actual data proves that this message is working. Cut 14. Listen. And so you have Americans throughout our country I think have recognized it's a pain to travel internationally now. I mean, who wants to be stuck in a foreign country 
because you get some positive COVID test, which may be COVID that you had a month ago, but there's still dead virus or something. You're not even sick or infectious, and you could be stranded in a foreign country. I mean, people don't want to right, deal so with that hassle. All right, so hold up right here for a second. So he's talking about the potential hassle if you go abroad, then you have to test negative to get out of the country, and you might have some long dead virus particles that cause a positive test. Then you're stranded there. You have to quarantine for a while. That is extremely inconvenient. So he's saying maybe you don't want to go abroad. I'm going abroad later this week, so knock on wood that everything goes smoothly. He says, but domestically, here's the other pivot. If you're going to stay here in the USA for your vacation, you have a choice. Do you want to vacation in one type of state, one type of city, or a Florida type of state? Listen. But then if you're looking to travel domestically, who wants to travel to some place where you want to go get a hamburger and you have to show your medical papers or they force you to wear masks or they force you to do all these things? And so in Florida, we don't do that. You know, it's a free state. You can make your own decisions about what you want or not do, uh, but we're not doing passports. We're not doing mandates, um, and we're not doing any restrictions. And so people know when they come here, they can actually have a vacation. Why would you want to go someplace to vacation and then have someone hound you about your medical papers or about your mask or all these other things? So you make those decisions for yourself in the state of Florida. I think that is resonant with a lot of people. People come here, they know they can actually have a vacation, and they've done that to the tune of 118 million visitors in Florida last year alone. And I think it's interesting that he goes through and talks about the vaccine papers and people hassling you about a mask. I'm very pro-vaccine, as you all know. The vaccine mandates and the passports and showing your photo ID. When I got here to New York City last night, the very first restaurant that I encountered walking past, had a big sign out front saying, we need to see proof of vaccination plus your photo ID. That juxtaposition between New York City and Florida is exactly what he's getting at. That's the point that he wants to drive home. And he's just reinforcing, I think, an intuition that many Americans feel in their gut. Now, he goes on, and I think this is really interesting. He goes on to talk about a lot of foreigners who have come to Florida over the course of the last year or so, saying that for the last quarter, Florida has actually attracted more foreign travelers and tourists than New York. Notice that he's hitting California. He's hitting New York. That's not by accident. He knows what he's doing. He's drawing contrasts. He said New York has been number one for a long time, and now Florida has overtaken New York, at least in the last quarter, when it comes to foreign vacations foreign travelers coming in. He mentions Canada specifically. Also not a mistake. You think about what's happening up in Canada and Justin Trudeau's Canada? And he's talking about the many snowbirds who own property down in Florida who came to Florida to escape what was happening in Canada. That's another compare and contrast object lesson that he's trying to impart. And he's doing it, I think, very effectively. It's a savvy thing to do. And he boasts, actually... That in Canada, for a while there, it was really hard to get vaccinated. In Florida, those people could come down if they have property in Florida and get their shots in the Sunshine State. He was boasting about vaccinating Canadians when Trudeau's government wasn't really able to do that. So then, further on, he discusses overtaking New York, as I mentioned. And then he pivots to something that he wants to mention, I think, with some relish, which is 
the number of people who have been publicly critical of Florida, critical of the way that he's run the state during the pandemic, who have somehow managed to come down to Florida on vacation anyway. This is a clean, strong hit in cut 16. And New York had been number one for like 20 years and probably most even before that. Uh, And so we were able to do that. And again, I think it's because the experience, people know they're going to be able to come here. They're going to be treated with respect and their their personal decisions are going to be respected. Um, I'm also proud to announce that in 2021, we had the most domestic visitation in the history of our state. 118 million visitors from across the nation came to the state of Florida. And amongst those visitors, I just have to point out, you have governors that have locked down their states, imposed mandates, imposed restrictions. You have big city mayors that have imposed lockdown policies. You have people on TV news networks that advocate for restrictions and lockdowns. And almost all of them have been criticizing Florida for a year and a half. They sure have. He doesn't name names, but it's not hard to decipher who he's talking about. He's talking about blue state governors, a few of whom have been in the news for going to Florida. I know Pritzker's family from Illinois, they were in Florida for a while. He's talking about mayors. He's talking about members of Congress like AOC, who decided not to go to Puerto Rico to visit her abuela. She went to Florida. Eric Swalwell, we saw those photos, right? He mentions people in the news media. Perhaps he's thinking of Chris Cuomo of CNN, who would rip Florida constantly on the air and DeSantis's COVID approach. Well, now he's got a lot of time on his hands. Cuomo does and a lot of money on his hands. He's down in Florida vacationing. Also, there's a lot of gall there attacking Florida's COVID policies, given who his brother is and the COVID policies and outcomes in New York. Are you kidding? Well, now Cuomo has decamped to Florida and DeSantis wraps up this part of the press conference that I want you to hear by calling out that hypocrisy, but explaining what it means in Cut 17. And yet many of them are part of our visitation figures coming down to Florida. You find them on the beach. You find them somewhere else at some resort. Uh, All the while, they're treating their own people uh, very poorly and criticizing us for treating people uh, with respect and and protecting their freedoms. So, yes, there are a lot of those lockdown politicians that are reflected in the 118 million visitors from across the nation. But, look, you know, people vote with their feet so they can say one thing, but what they do is often more important than what they say. Ain't that the truth? This is an aggressive defense of his approach to governance during the pandemic era. The numbers are a vindication of that governance in a lot of ways. It is also making a statement with the people of Florida. He's saying this is what we've achieved. Compare what we've done here with some of these other places. Aren't you glad you're here? And right now it looks like Most Florida voters, a majority, maybe a substantial majority, say yes. That matters come November. And I also think here he's auditioning for something bigger. And I think there's a lot of people who are intrigued and watching him very closely or very nervously over on the other side of the aisle. That's my suspicion. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this break. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Welcome back. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. So there's a guy that I actually met virtually during the pandemic. He and I did an event for what I believe is both of our alma mater, our high school in New Jersey. 
Tim Urban. His handle on Twitter is at WaitButWhy. He's a writer. He has a pretty big following. He tweeted out a very funny thread of images based on the work of someone called Hidraeli Diao, who used artificial intelligence, AI, to basically depict what historical figures would look like if they were modern people. So they would take famous portraits or old images and then update them as if this person were living in 2022. So they have the original portrait side by side with the AI image. And the first one was George Washington, and he's drinking a glass of wine, and I chuckled about that. And you scroll down, the Mona Lisa, I don't know. I I think that she's sort of more mysterious and beautiful in the painting than the real-life version, in my opinion. We'll post this on our Twitter feed. Wyatt, if you can just retweet at Guy Benson Show. That's our Twitter handle. And you can just scroll through and enjoy these. I'm going to say this. The Statue of Liberty is actually very attractive. They took they took the statue's face and then translated it into a modern-day woman, and she's very beautiful. Caesar sort of looks like a ruthless shark of a CEO. You keep scrolling through. Beethoven? Hello. Beethoven is uh, very attractive. Bum, 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 bum. Cleopatra, not surprisingly, very beautiful. Alexander the Great, a little youthful. Looks like he could maybe be in a boy band. It's good stuff. I chuckled throughout. And if you're curious, you can go check it out. We retweeted it at Guy Benson Show. Stepping aside, coming right back on the happy hour. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. As we were coming on the air today at the top of the show, we welcomed Eli Lake, a foreign policy reporter and analyst, to bring us the very latest on Ukraine and the statements from Vladimir Putin earlier that I think are quite chilling and clearly, in my mind, a prelude to war. Here's part of our conversation with Eli Lake. Listen in. Okay, explain to us on a very elementary level because, you know, I follow the news, I read, but I am not as sophisticated as you are on this. Explain to us what President Putin just declared in his speech to the world, basically, a few minutes ago, and what do those declarations mean? Well, what he what he has said is is that Russia will now recognize the contested provinces in Donetsk, which have, have been supported by Russia, irregular forces since the 2014 invasion, and effectively he is recognizing them as independent um, countries that are while they while the rest of the world still recognizes these as provinces of Ukraine. He did something. The Russians did something very similar about a decade ago when it came to Georgia after they invaded Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So what you're seeing here is um, a kind of another bite at Ukrainian sovereignty. This follows, of course, the annexation of Crimea, which happened in 2014 after the last Russian invasion. So what we've seen here is a kind of political recognition of these independent kind of what he's saying are now independent countries. Um, This is, you know, this is entirely a crisis that is created by Russia. Russia has supported the uh, kind of the the people who would like these sort of the independence. Um, There's there's not a lot of evidence, by the way, that they're speaking for even Russian-speaking Ukrainians at this point. 
So that is what has happened. It looks like a prelude to something else. We the, the word from the White House is that the intention is to invade Ukraine with a full military force and that the target is the capital, Kiev, which would effectively negate the independence of Ukraine, an independent country. I mean, that's so much to digest, and it's very alarming. Sure. Just to be clear, these I know they're being called in a lot of the chirons and some of the headlines and tweets separatist regions, but these are elements of Ukraine's sovereign territory, just to be clear, correct? This is a declaration— Not only are they, el- Go not ahead. Only are they elements of Ukrainian of Ukraine's sovereign territory, the only reason that these are contested re- regions at this point is because— Russia has pursued a cynical strategy to arm and support uh, kind of gangster militias. Right, they've that, manufactured this, right? They've manufactured yeah, the they've situation that they now it. cite as some sort of excuse or justification. And that's the thing, Eli, as I watch all of this play out, I understand that there are criticisms to be made of President Biden and the Biden administration, and I think his weakness and the fiasco in Afghanistan, for example, certainly caught the attention of despots around the world. I think that you can talk about some of the things that Biden has said, the minor incursion, flub at his press conference, and we were critical of all of that. But I think to focus a lot of the attention on Biden or really anyone else at this point is to miss the point, at least right now, this is 100 percent the fault. This is 100 percent on the shoulders of this is 100 percent laid at the feet of Vladimir Putin. Right. He is doing this. No one else is responsible for this. Is that fair in your mind to say that? Absolutely. And I'll go one further. There are voices now on the right that sound a lot like traditional voices that we associate with the left, which is that they are uh, rationalizing Putin's predations and aggression as a response to the expansion of NATO, that there is warmongering in the U.S. media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is just running interference for uh, a, a despot who is intent on violating the basic rules of sovereignty and international security that have been, in, you know, the rules of the international system now for more than 70 years. Uh, It's totally Putin's fault. No one who calls themselves a conservative or considers themselves somebody on the right should have any kind of excuse-making for Vladimir Putin. He is uh, destroying the sovereignty and independence of a country that clearly does not want to be occupied by Russia, full stop. And It's an American ally in a democracy, which— Absolutely. Russia is neither of those things. And look, you can have I am more than happy to have a debate about whether or not the U.S. has any major stake in this fight. Should we get involved? And if so, to what extent? Most people, I think, would oppose boots on the ground in Ukraine. They are not a member of NATO, although that, you know, that potential situation is part of the reason, I think, why Putin has done a lot of this to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. He's he's obsessed about that. But. We can have disagreements about the extent of U.S. support for Ukraine and what that should look like. I think extrapolating that debate or then shifting that debate away into blaming in any way the Ukrainians or excusing in any way the Russians and Putin specifically is really losing sight of the clear moral 
reality here. And the thing is with with Putin, he has created a crisis, and it almost strikes me, Eli, that he's barely going through the motions of justifying what would be potentially this full-fledged invasion of a free country. My full interview with Eli and all of our coverage on Ukraine and a host of other issues today, available on the podcast, which is free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, something Russia-related, just not quite this way. We'll get to that when we come back. That's straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday from New York City. Catch me tonight on Kennedy, sitting in for Kennedy, FBN, 7 p.m. Eastern. Well, we, of course, have been covering throughout this program today the major tremors in Eastern Europe and the statements from the Russian dictator now declaring, in his mind, parts of Eastern Ukraine independent. And that is going to be part of his pretext to go to war to defend, quote-unquote, those independent areas. It is a flagrant and brazen violation of the territorial sovereignty of Ukraine. And so that is a full-blown crisis. There's another Russia-related controversy that's gotten a lot of attention in the last few days. And I have to confess, I've only read about it because I didn't watch the Olympics. We've discussed why on this show. I didn't want to lend my eyeballs or my support to the genocide games in China at all even though I love the Winter Olympics, so I didn't watch any of it. But I've seen enough write-ups of this crazy drama about women's figure skating and how the whole thing just sort of melted down and the drama was all surrounding the Russians. And my understanding is the Russians can't even officially compete as Russians because of a previous doping scandal. They're like the Russian Federation Olympic Committee or something. Well, there's yet another doping scandal that just exploded toward the end of the games. And so rather than trying to describe it to you as someone who didn't watch, even though I find it riveting in some ways, we were looking around for someone who did watch it. No one at our show had watched it, but one of our bosses had. Maria Donovan is one of our chiefs here at Fox News Radio. We mentioned Maria from time to time. I don't believe we've ever had her on the air. Maria, you watched... All of this go down live on NBC. And I will note, we can't play any of the sound because they are very strict about the rights. We can't even play the song. Am I allowed to play? Can I sing the song? No, you're not allowed to sing the song. Really? Bum, bum, ba, bum, bum, ba, da, da. And I'm done. You're one done. more one more note, and maybe we would have gotten a lawsuit. So I'm going to stop. You know how it goes. You know how the little ditty goes. It's a great song. And Better safe than sorry, guys. That's exactly right, especially with the boss in the room. You watch this whole thing I did. go down, and this is why I think a lot of people do watch the Olympics, to see if something like this happens. There was a young woman on the Russian quote-unquote team, 15 years old. She failed a drug test. She tested positive for a performance-enhancing drug. She was allowed to skate anyway, even though one of our athletes last year was disqualified because she did marijuana, which does not enhance your performance really in anything except maybe eating allegedly uh she wasn't allowed to perform or compete rather in the summer games but this girl from russia was 
a lot of people were furious. My understanding is Johnny Weir and Tara Lipinski, some of the NBC announcers, former major famous figure skaters, were furious at the decision and almost wouldn't even comment on her routines almost as a protest. What was going on there and then what happened? Well, I didn't see her initial um, performance where I believe they stayed silent, or the NBC commentators, but I did. Um, I was monitoring for news on Twitter and I saw that she was skating now. So I turned the TV on and I watched and um, our announcers are pretty measured, um, very um, not a lot to say. Um, they did make it known that they didn't believe she should be skating. And they, they mentioned that over and over again. But um, she fell, got up, fell a few more times, got up. You could tell she was exhausted. And then at the end, when she went, got off the ice, her coaches approached her and um, wouldn't, didn't raise their voice, but it was clear they were not happy with her. And we found out later... They were saying, well, the, the female coach, why did you give up or, you know, what happened there? And she was just sobbing yes. already. And this is the 15-year-old who's been this lightning rod in the middle of a controversy for days on a global scale. Mm-hmm. She understands a lot of people are angry. She was pumped full of whatever this stuff was, I'm sure, by the adults. She feels to me like like a pawn in all of this. Then under the pressure, I think it's fair to say she collapsed under the pressure. I think that's fair to say it was it was stunning. And I've seen a lot of figure skating, but I'm just a casual viewer. Um, It was really dramatic. The announcers were letting it all play out, basically letting the natural sound play. And of course, they're speaking a different language. So I don't understand. But Johnny Weir appeared to understand Russian. So he was translating um, bits and pieces in real time. Yes. This is wild. Yes. And um, it was it, it it was very I could I have to say it was sad. Um, you you know the history of figure skating, especially Russian figure skaters, and you have this impression that it's you know so strict and you know that's all they do, and and the expectations are so high. Well, I felt pretty, like we it's pretty cutthroat and ruthless here, but it's next level in those types of countries, especially with Russia. But Russia or their Olympic committee because of their other doping scandals. It's just amazing. They have doping scandals. They get the slap on the wrist and then they still allow a doping scandal person to compete anyway. But two of their other skaters won, right? They came in first and second place. But that's almost where things got crazier. It it just got crazier. And I felt like we were actually seeing it all come out in the wash, so to speak. Um, The, there was another skater who actually ended up winning the silver and she was out of her mind. She was stomping. She was back and forth and screaming. And again, I don't know what she was saying. And one of the um, officials, uh, uh, Olympic, Olympic officials went up to her. And um, apparently this Russian skater said, I don't understand English. And Johnny Weir had um, uh, translated that. But she was beside herself. Oh, she we, said, I hate this sport. I hate this. We found out later um, through media reports that she was mad that she got the silver. She did all these very difficult um, uh, moves that she felt technically should have given her the, uh, should have earned her the gold medal. And she wasn't alone in feeling that apparently. Well, yeah. So she was stomping all around and it it literally was like watching a a, a train wreck. And then she's melting down. So you've got the, the 15 year old who was the gold favorite 
totally melted under yes. pressure. You have the meltdown of the silver medalist who feels robbed of the gold, perhaps yes. fairly. Yes. Then you've got the gold medalist who just looks like the loneliest person on the planet at this point. And she was quoted saying something like, I feel happy, but also empty, which is also very sad. And it just, I mean, I can't imagine the Putin people were back home watching this with beaming pride. It was really an ugly scene. All I could think of was uh, Vladimir Putin saying, get on that podium. But again, I, again, was speculating. So when the, the uh, silver medalists, you know, they, they call them all out. And first the bronze medalist was from Japan and she was happy as a clown, yeah, just happy, happy person, to be there, yeah. <laughs> goes out, does her little skate, gets on the podium. And then the Russian, the silver medalist who was having that tantrum goes out there like a different person, you know, skating, you know, putting on that performance, gets on the, gets on the podium. And then the gold medalist, and she's just like, I'm like, you know, putting the smile on her face, almost like completely like different from an act. Uh, yeah. And and it really it really did feel surreal to watch it. Um, my mouth probably hit hit the desk because it, it just was something that you think might ha- go on behind the scenes. But the whole world it spilled it. out in front of many, many, many millions of people all yes. across the planet. And the reason that I want to talk about this and end the show on this today is I was getting text messages from friends saying, are you seeing this? And I wasn't for my various reasons. And enough people wrote it up, not just in people who were covering the Olympics, but people who weren't, said it was so shocking. And it felt like almost a fitting punctuation mark at the end of a very Mm -hmm. controversial, in many ways disgraceful Olympic Games in Beijing, where you had the Chinese Communist Party as the hosts and Russia, which is now you know, uh, persona non grata in a lot of ways internationally, even more so today than yesterday, their contingent putting on this Real Housewives-level drama. And if not for my boycott, this is something I would go back and watch. It seems that intriguing, but also sort of heartbreaking in its own way. It was heartbreaking, I thought. I I felt, and and I think you heard that from Johnny Weir and Tara Lipinski, too. Tara Lipinski, who people in in the Twitterverse and in the skating uh, universe were reminding everyone she won a gold medal at 15 without dope. But even they were shaken. And by the end of the whole episode, we're like, you know, this is this is terrible. Um, but, yeah, it it um, it was an inter- interesting punctuation mm-hmm. um, for an Olympics that probably will soon forget. And if you do want to watch it, just remember, you'll probably have to watch it on the Olympic Channel or some sort right, of NBC very strict. Um, yes, station. Da, 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 da. That's, I can't do any more. That's, that's all I can sing. Yeah. No, And it combined some of my favorite stuff, sports, competition, politics, geopolitics, and a huge media supernova. So we had to discuss it here, and I didn't want to do it having not watched it, which is why Maria Donovan has done it for us, one of our bosses here at Fox News Radio. We appreciate that analysis, Maria. Maybe we should have you back. Mm. The <laughs> yeah. Olympics are in another, what, four years? Yeah, we can revisit it. <laughs> three I years guess. for the – three years maybe? <laughs> yes, well, we can maybe revisit that in the years to come. Maria, thank okay. you, though. Thank you. Final stretch here, now over on The Guy Benson Show. I'm heading up to do Kennedy 
on the TV side, FBN, 7 p.m., so just about an hour from now, Eastern Time. Hope to see you there or set your DVRs. Back here tomorrow, outnumbered at noon on Fox News Channel, radio, same time, same place for The Guy Benson Show. In the meantime, have a great night. Thank you for listening. the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.